0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Let's bring in Jack Ablin, shall we? Crescent Wealth Advisor, CIO, and founder as well. Fantastic to catch up with you, Jack. Walk us through what you're seeing in terms of policy. Is it enough? to deliver a circuit breaker for this very volatile, liquid market?
0: Yeah, it, uh, well, we're waiting. Um, you know, obviously monetary policy, it was, Pretty effective, reasonably effective in, you know, creating the money market liquidity, um, you know, maybe going off with a few bumps. But um, all in all, I think is it's pretty steady. And so we did learn a lot of the last crisis. Now, of course, all eyes are on fiscal, uh, the fiscal policy and you know president trump's talking about a trillion um you know my back of the envelope estimate that is if if this is essentially call it six weeks of you know utter standstill um then that equates to about call it a two trillion of gdp um if you assume that maybe 30 A third of the economy is actually still operating, then maybe this is about $1.3 trillion um, to fill that gap. Um, And, you know, where does it come from? It's possible this could be that modern monetary theory that's been you know, bouncing
2: around. Well, there's a question about the fiscal response. In the meantime, monetary policymakers have urgently been trying to prevent a financial crisis from unfolding. As the author of a book, Reading Minds and Markets, Minimizing Risk and Maximizing Returns in a Volatile Global Marketplace, it was published in July 2009, very apropos at this moment, which is probably the most volatile time in markets in history. I'm wondering have we actually managed to stave off a financial crisis, or are the wild moves we're seeing evidence that we are seeing things absolutely spiral out of control on the market side?
0: Well, I think part of the you know a good deal I should say of the selling that's going on is forced selling the The fact is that um, there are you know i'm going to say probably call it three to four hundred billion of institutional funds managed um, in a you know, programmatic way where volatility goes up risk has to come down um you know if uh you know puts get uh, uh essentially assigned then uh, items have to be sold um you know and so there's there's uh, um option writing there's risk parity um and then there's just out and out leverage um which has been know, certainly benefited these managers for the last several years. And I think that's really exaggerated a lot of the moves.
2: Jack, how far in that leverage unwind are we? Do you have a sense of that?
0: I, I really don't. Um, I, You know, it's just because of these volatile, we're, we still have these enormously volatile sessions. So it's really hard to gauge, you know, how much of this is, um, you know, is through, I would say, from a risk parity point of view, you know, does, does the VIX get much higher than 80? You know, because it's not necessarily the level, it's the direction now, because assuming that all risk parity traders have, uh, you know, essentially adjusted to a VIX of 80, um, you know, perhaps uh, if it just stays at that level and comes down, maybe most of that's behind us.
1: Jack Abloom, great to catch up with you, joining us on the market here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in Sabadro Ajapasawi, today, a General Head of US rate Strategy. Sabadra, fantastic to have you with us on the program. Walk us through what you think is the biggest driver right now. Is it people just selling what they can, not necessarily what they want? Is it some big technical issue out, technical issue out there, the illiquidity that we're experiencing in some really, really big parts of the market? Or is this just supply risk? What is it for you at the longer end of the curve?
3: Well, I think it's a combination of all of the above. Um, I think the lack of liquidity, in my opinion, is the number one reason for the this erratic move, I would say, in Treasuries, because it's, it's off 20 basis points one day and then it it rallies 15 basis points the next. Um, if you are a corporate bond investor, for instance, you, you are not able to sell your corporate bonds, you're going to sell – Perhaps other liquid assets you have uh, to be able to meet your margin requirements or other purposes. Um, there's also a lot of uh, you know demand for dollars broadly speaking from a variety of market participants, and and the first thing that they can sell is is the most liquid asset they have. The other factor, like you pointed out, is also tangible risk of higher deficits. But I generally I'm not, I would de-emphasize the bond vigilante characterization because, in my opinion, over time, if the ECB as well as the Fed and all global central banks are doing QE, the trajectory has to be for, for yields to gradually move lower. So there's been really no correlation in the last you know, two decades between higher deficits and higher treasury yields.
2: Subhadra, there's a question here. You talk about the fundamentals. You talk about the lack of liquidity. The lack of liquidity certainly has gotten the attention of the Federal Reserve, and they've tried to step in to try to stave that off by buying uh, additional bonds, particularly on the longer end of the curve. Why has that not been helping more?
3: That's a very, very good question, Lisa, because the lack of liquidity that I'm talking about has to do with the post crisis regulatory environment where balance sheets for dealers who are typically the ones that are disintermediating this risk uh, has shrunk. So they're very, very careful about taking on risk. Um, They have uh, both uh, both on the repo side as well as on the uh, cash side, they're not able to rapidly grow their balance sheet. Also, there's an issue of price discovery. When there's erratic moves in the market, it's very hard for market makers to be able to know exactly where where things trade. So they tend to make the bid offers a lot wider than they normally would. And adding to this problem is the fact that people are working from home. There's not that same level of information flow that you would see in a trading floor that on any given day that you're seeing right now.
2: Subhadra, for somebody who is hearing these words that, that, that the treasury market is dysfunctional, this is a $17 trillion market, it's crucial to the entire global market. Can you give a little perspective about just why that is, just sort of how crucial it is for the volatility in the treasury space to to decline in order for everything else to stabilize?
3: Uh, I must say, I've been in the bond market for over two decades, and I've never seen this kind of uh, volatility and and wide bid offers uh, in the the treasury market. So I think it's extraordinarily important uh, that the treasury market actually functions properly. As you might know, we've had Uh, you know, flash rallies in the past and the Treasury has been very closely monitoring price action in the bond market. But, you know, the Treasury market is your go to market for for safe haven. So if you're uh, an investor that that wants to get out of risky assets and and purchase a safe haven asset, you're going to flock towards Treasury. So it's extraordinarily important that this market functions uh, you know very efficiently and you're seeing this not just in the in the cash OTC markets you're seeing illiquidity in the futures market as well which is which is also somewhat troubling
1: so Badger, just to wrap things up on the regulatory side you mentioned some of the regulation i just wonder what you think should be done we just had a bloomberg terminal subscriber write into me And we've had a lot of people write in with some really, really good thoughts on things. And I think this resonates with what you're saying. As volume goes up, volatility goes up, the risk managers will force you to shrink the desk position. So in effect, it forces less liquidity every time there's a crisis. So vol up, guess what? Risk managers tap you on the shoulder, pull back your positions, liquidity gets worse every time we get into this situation. And Sabantra, I just wonder what we can do about that to cut that break, break that link, get that circuit breaker in there.
3: Well, I think the the Fed has done its part a little bit by providing the primary dealer facility as well as, uh, you know, some of the other repo facilities that should provide liquidity to directly to primary dealers and and depository institutions. But beyond that, I would argue that the uh, supplementary leverage ratio requirements and the leverage ratio requirements that have been imposed in the post-crisis period has also Uh, vastly limited the dealer's ability to be able to take on very large positions. This is also an issue in corporate bonds where the Volcker rule is very much in play. So there's uh, there's clearly a lot of good rules that were put in place after the financial crisis uh, to avoid excessive risk-taking among dealers. But that's also hurting in an environment like this where you have uh, primary dealers are sort of your conduits for disintermediating risk.
1: Sabadra, so great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much for joining us. Sabadra so Rajapadé, Soste at General's Head of US Rate Strategy. I want to bring in Nathan Sheets, PGN Fixed Income Economist and Macroeconomic Researcher. Nathan, fantastic to catch up with you. Let's just get your thoughts on a claims number, 281, direction of travel not pretty. How bad do you expect this to get in the coming weeks?
4: Well, uh, I think you folks have really nailed it. Uh, 70,000 uh, increase in a week is uh, enormous, and uh, my expectation is that that number will continue to rise. The question is uh, how high. And that this is uh, really our first gauge on just how badly the real economy is going to be hit by this thing. And I think, uh, you know, to me, it feels like we're, we're standing on the edge of an abyss and we just can't see the bottom. This is, this is a very scary juncture.
2: Nathan, this is a very scary juncture, and it's a lot of scary. Uh, it, there are a lot of people who are very worried about their own financial well-being. They are seeing themselves get laid off in mass, and there's a question: Will the jobs return? Do we have a sense of that? I mean, is there sort of a, a trajectory here where we could see a, a rapid increase in the number of those unemployed, and then it all comes back online?
4: So I'm I'm comfortable that the jobs will return someday. But that's the problem is we don't know when that day is. Uh and and how do we get from here to there? That's really the key question. Now, as I say that, that is also a question that fiscal policy can help answer. This is, this is where fiscal policy can be the most powerful. So these ideas that are being floated to significantly increase unemployment benefits, great idea to help these people, uh, ideas uh, to, to buffer those that have lost wages, great ideas. And I think at a time like this, it even makes sense as they're considering to just mail people money. But uh, fiscal policy is going to be the key to building this bridge from where we are today to that someday when the jobs
1: return. Couldn't agree more, Nathan. And at the moment, there's a line that's going around. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, perfection is the enemy of the good. We need this fast. It doesn't need to be perfect. We just need this quickly. Do you anticipate this will get done quickly enough to address some of the issues that you're worried about right now?
4: Mitch McConnell uh, told his caucus there was some pushback on uh, the bill that they approved yesterday. He said, just gag and vote for it and worry about fixing it later. So I think, that the, I think that the Congress, the political system is very much now in a place where we've got to get something done. It's got to be big, and it's got to be quick. And uh, I would expect uh, that we'll see something on the order of a trillion dollars of fiscal uh, stimulus, let's say over the next week or 10 days, could even be faster.
2: Nathan, there's also a question about the psychological impact, the staying power that that has on an economy when you have tens of thousands, uh, perhaps a million people, ultimately, according to some estimates, who lose their jobs in short order. What does that do to the economy longer term in in terms of consumer spending and saving rates and household formation? I mean, do you have a sense of, of how long lasting the psychological impact could be?
4: You know, in in some sense, I would say that we are still uh, dealing with the psychological ramifications of the global financial crisis now, uh, more than a decade later. And I think that uh, this episode uh, that we're going through now, again, depending on how long lived it is, how the virus evolves, is going to leave uh, a signature uh, in people's thinking, and I think it's underscoring to them that uh, the world is a risky place. Now, what exactly that means for the economy going forward, I think, is an open issue. But uh, on the margin, I think everyone will, uh, for some time, be a little more cautious and recognize that there are broad classes of risks, some that are evident and some that, uh, like like this virus, that just kind of emerge out of nowhere.
1: Nathan, we're lucky to have you this morning because you're an economist that sits... Around some really, really great fixed income portfolio managers like Greg Peters, like Mike Collins, like others over at PGM. And I just wonder when you all bang your heads against each other over the last couple of weeks, many times I'm sure, how you're thinking about the key economic question at the moment. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the happy talk of a V-shaped recovery still dominated a lot of Wall Street. That's gone really, really quickly. Now there's still talk of eventually coming out of this okay. But I think the downside risk that we keep coming back to on this particular program is will this episode spark a period of defaults and deleveraging that is gonna stick with us for a long time and long after this health crisis fades. When you all get together, Nathan, on that issue, what comes out the other side of that conversation?
4: Well, uh, for some time, we've been uh, quite worried about, uh, about debt levels and uh, the risks that they might pose for uh, deleveraging going forward. And our sense is that these high levels of debt are uh, an element that's contributing to these historically low uh, interest rates. Now, obviously, right now, there's a lot of of crisis-related factors that have dragged uh, rates down even lower. But uh, those uh, deleveraging incentives flowing from this recognition that the world can be risky, uh, I think they're with us uh, for quite some time. And, uh, and uh, you know, that, that, that V-shaped uh, recession you described is feeling so last week. You know, this week, uh, I think we're hoping for you, and uh, I worry the next week we may be thinking more about, Uh, in terms of an L.
2: Nathan, I'd love to dig more into the idea of deleveraging. John is is really right to keep bringing it up. There is a question of how it looks. Does it look like companies being more prudent and not doing as many share buybacks and perhaps curbing uh, certain types of executive compensation? Or does it look like bankruptcies and defaults? And those are two very different outcomes. Do you have a sense of that? it, it depends
4: critically on uh, how severe the economic circumstances are. If 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 we go through a period uh, here where GDP falls sharply and that continues for several quarters, uh, I think we will see some uh, corporate defaults. I think that that's, uh, that's unavoidable. Again, fiscal policy can be helpful in providing a safety net for some of those firms and maybe delaying uh, that process. But if this is extended, I think we're going to see uh, firms push to the edge and maybe maybe beyond. If it's a shorter term uh, uh, development uh, that we're dealing with here, then uh, maybe firms will have a little bit more time and they can do the gentle kinds of deleveraging, like you described, of maybe reducing share buybacks, um, uh, being a little bit more cautious in terms of uh, of uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions policy, maybe being a little more cautious on dividends and that kind of thing. But uh, it, it depends on where the economy's headed, but you know, it is pretty clear, and even before this episode, that the corporates had got the message that they had too much leverage and needed to bring it down.
1: Nathan, now they definitely need to. Nathan Shees, PGM Fixed Income Economist. Great to catch up with you, Nathan. My best to the team over at PGM.
2: There's a question going forward of what stock investors are pricing into the market. And I want to read you this quote from Sam Stovall, Chief Investment Strategist at CFRA Research in a Bloomberg News story recently. What most investors are worried about is that a recession is a foregone conclusion. And what we don't know is the severity of the recession, whether it will be another great recession or a shallow swoon. Sam joining us now by phone. Sam, can you give us a sense right now of what stocks are pricing in? Which of those scenarios?
5: Well, good morning, Lisa and Paul. I guess the question could be which stocks are not pricing in uh, the worst-case scenario. Um, a lot of people want to know just how bad could it get. And if you look to valuations, you look to the fact that even though S&P Capital IQ consensus estimates are still pointing to a positive 2020, uh, it's down from a near 8% growth at the beginning of the year. And if you look to recession since World War II – Basically, we have seen on average about a 10% decline in earnings. So if we were to see $148 on the S&P 500, not $168, and if we went down to a PE of 10 times, which is where we went in 2008, one could make the case that we end up with a 56% bear market, so rivaling that of 07 through 09.
2: So how much further do we have to go?
5: Well, uh, looking at at those kind of numbers, you know, we're down 30% right now. So it's almost a doubling of what we've declined.
6: All right, Sam. So what are you thinking about? You've been in the markets a long time, Sam. Give us, I mean, this are clearly unprecedented times, pandemics. This is nothing we learned in business school. This is nothing we've seen in markets before. What is your gut view of kind of what's happening out there?
5: Well, good good way of asking that. Uh, I think investors should embrace history over hysteria. Um, when I look to what has happened in the past, we went from a all-time high to the 20% decline threshold in 22 calendar days, which was almost twice as quick as the second most rapid decline. Um, History would then imply, but not guarantee, that uh, swift tends to be shallow, uh, that on average, those bear markets that did occur the most quickly ended up being down anywhere from 33% down to the 21%, uh, just barely a bear market uh, registration. Also, when I look to a rolling 15-day percent change in the intraday high and low of the market, we are second highest only to October, late October of 2008. So we surpassed the uh, U.S. Treasury debt being downgraded in 2011. We surpassed, the capitulation that took place uh, in the end of the O2 bear market. Um, And basically, I think we're at an extreme in terms of volatility, which could imply that we are probably close to this crescendo bottom.
6: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, volatility. I'm just looking at the VIX on my Bloomberg terminal screen here. 81.67, just extraordinary levels uh, on the VIX. So, Sam, to the extent that, you know, let's look towards the the other side of this uh, virus uh, pandemic uh, crisis, where would where do you think investors, when we do get there, where should they be looking initially?
5: Well, the first question is what makes us think that we could actually be getting close to a bottom? Uh, well, first off is from an economic perspective, uh, we're still only calling for one quarter of GDP decline. Of course, it's going to be a steep one. Uh, We think that when the numbers finally come out, we'll be up 1% in the first quarter, mainly because of a lot of hoarding that has been taking place. Second quarter, however, we're going to take it on the chin with a 5% decline, but then see a dramatic bounce uh, up 6.4% in Q3 and 4.4% in Q4. Um, looking to a simple screening of those companies where we have buy or strong buy recommendations, P.E. ratios below that of the market, yet have uh, high S&P earnings and dividend quality rankings, meaning consistency of raising earnings and dividends, you've got a a lot of names that are fairly comfortable with investors. Comcast, Disney, General Mills, Tyson, Ameriprise, CVS uh, Health Corp., etc. Uh, So these are companies like if you're an investor who wants to wear both a belt and suspenders, uh, these could be good buys going forward. If, however, you say, no, I want to go for those that have fallen the most because history says those that were worst end up becoming first. Uh, That is true that when the bottom does occur, usually those priced to go out of business but did not are the ones that tend to recover the most.
2: We're speaking with Sam Stovall, C.F.R.A. Chief Investment Strategist, and here we were basically flat, uh, certainly on the Nasdaq when we opened, but seven minutes into the trading day here in New York, and we see the gravitational force is lower. The S and P now down one point nine percent, twenty three fifty two points is the level there. The Nasdaq down eight tenths of a percent at sixty nine thirty two, and we're looking at at this sort of uncertainty, Sam, that you're talking about about the depth of the uh, potential. Recession session about just how long lasting it will be, as well as which areas are going to get hit hardest. And I'm wondering on the other side of this, and I do want to focus on that just because markets do try to price in some sort of future. Um, Do you have a sense of which companies, which sectors are likely to emerge first?
5: Well, uh, in bear market environments, uh, it's traditionally your defensive that hold up the best. So uh, consumer staples, healthcare. care, um, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough go eating, smoking and drinking. And if they overdo it, they have to go to the doctor. On the flip side, however, it's usually the cyclicals that tend to be the outperformers, industrials, financials, technology that tend to be those that lead uh, on the reemergence of optimism. So You know, I I would tend to say, look to those quality companies uh, in each one of those more cyclical sectors, and they're the ones that are likely to lead us out.
2: What about big tech? Because that was the main driver ahead of this downturn uh, for for equity valuations. Do you think they'll continue to lead?
5: Um, Yes, I do. Uh, I think when you look to technology right now, S&P Capital IQ is pointing to a, only a 1.3% gain in earnings in 2020, yet tech is still expected to be up about 7.5%, the best uh, by far of any of the other sectors within the 500. So looking at uh, relatively low P.E. ratios for the sector, uh, technology now trading at 174 versus 144 based on 2020 estimates, Tech is one of those four sectors that is trading at a double-digit discount to its relative P.E. over the last 20 years.
6: Sam, what do you make of the fiscal stimulus we're starting to hear about coming out of Washington? Do you think – is that kind of in line with where it needs to be, or do you think we need even more?
5: Well, I think that – We need to be uh, putting a lot of money back into the system as quickly as possible. Certainly, you know, many are complaining that it's uh, not being done quickly enough. But uh, I tend to think that uh, based on how slowly Congress usually works, that this is pretty much light speed for them. Um, I think that the fiscal stimulus uh, won't stop any near-term margin call-induced selling. Uh, but it would definitely offer a subsequent springboard to a recovery.
6: Sam, so I guess I just want to just clarify for you, are you kind of in that V-shaped economic scenario where we're going to have one down quarter and then pick it right back up?
5: Yes, that's where we're leaning now, but it's obviously a very fluid situation. Uh, Our belief was that uh, back in just before the first U.S. case of COVID-19 was reported, Uh, expectations were for about a 2.4 percent gain in the second quarter GDP then it went down to one and a half two and now it's five percent but still it is a one quarter decline with a very sharp recovery in Q3 Uh, but obviously those numbers are subject to
2: revision. Sam Stovall, thank you so much for being with us. CFRA, Chief Investment Strategist.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.